0: This is The Rounds Table. Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of The Rams Table. I'm Emily Hughes. I'm a PGY-4 in internal medicine at the University of Toronto, and I'm so excited today to be joined by Dr. Justin Boyle, who is a PGY-3 at Queen's University. And very excitingly, Justin and I are going to be co-fellows next year in the Toronto General Internal Medicine program. So I'm so excited to continue to work with Justin and to make podcasts before we're officially co-fellows together.
1: Thank you so much for that introduction, Emily. I'm really excited as well. Um, And I think that we have two really fantastic papers to talk about today. Uh, So I hope everyone enjoys um, the podcast.
0: I couldn't agree more. So Justin, what article are you sharing with us today?
1: Today, I'll be talking about a trial of an intervention to improve acute heart failure outcomes from the COACH trial investigators uh, by Lee et al. And it was published in NEJM this November, actually.
0: Awesome. And what was the research question of this study?
1: So essentially, the purpose of this paper or study was to assess a strategy to support clinical decision making, and essentially what their objective was to determine whether the strategy led to better clinical outcomes than usual care, which involved using clinical judgment tools and estimation of risk to essentially determine if they can mitigate and prevent admissions for heart failure in a hospitalized context.
0: Sounds like a very important study with relevance to a lot of the patient population that I certainly see on general internal medicine. So tell me, why do you think it's important?
1: So I think this is an incredibly important study, especially within the Canadian healthcare context currently, especially with all the constraints and resource utilization and burdens on our healthcare system. But really specific to this paper, there are millions of people with heart failure worldwide. And essentially, this exerts substantial pressure on our healthcare systems due to the high levels of morbidity associated with heart failure exacerbations and resource use. And so really, I think that purpose of this paper is to examine and look at how they can use different clinical models and decision making to. Help improve healthcare outcomes for people with heart failure as well as alleviating that resource burden on the healthcare system more broadly. And I think that this is a really fantastic way to look at it.
0: Well, I'm certainly convinced. Tell me a little bit more about the study design.
1: And so the COACH trial design, which encompasses a couple different other studies, including this one, was a cross sectional stepped wedge cluster randomized trial. That was conducted in 10 hospitals across Ontario in Canada. And for this sort of step wedged RCT, it was conducted such that randomization was performed at the hospital level with the study.
0: Well, that's great. I also like to see studies coming out of our hometown, Ontario, that's kind of cool, published in the New England Journal of Medicine. So Justin, can you tell me a little bit about who is included in this study and who is excluded in this study?
1: For sure. So the inclusion criteria essentially were such that any individuals who were over the age of 18 that presented to the emergency room with heart failure were eligible for enrollment. And essentially the clinical diagnosis of heart failure was verified with data from hospital records and emergency department face sheets that sort of fit in with the primary diagnostic code for heart failure within the international classification of diseases. In terms of exclusions, essentially patients were excluded if they did not have a clinical diagnosis of heart failure. That was either according to criteria from the Framingham Heart Study, or if they had a BNP level that really suggested that heart failure was unlikely. More than that, if patients had heart failure or end-stage disease and were receiving palliative care, that was also an exclusion that they mentioned. And other things such as not having a valid health card number or those that were unable to attend visits in outpatient clinics were also excluded from the trial.
0: Okay. And what outcomes did they look at?
1: For sure. So in terms of outcomes, they had co-primary outcomes with the first being a composite of death from any cause or hospitalization for cardiovascular causes within 30 days after presentation to the emergency department that was evaluated in a time to event analysis. And the second co-primary outcome was the composite outcome above, but over a 20 month period. So it was really looking at extended outcomes after that initial presentation to hospital.
0: And give me a one-liner, what stats did they do to uh, look at the primary outcome?
1: So this is my first experience looking at a trial that used that sort of stepped wedge component to it. And so overall, from what I gather, is that they used sort of a traditional like e-value multivariate analysis for the co-primary outcomes. But of note, they mentioned that p-value is really only reported for the 30-day co-primary outcome due to their inability to adjust for their type 1 error rate. But essentially, they didn't necessarily follow an intention to treat analysis because no patients were actually lost to follow-up, which is quite excellent, actually.
0: And what did the patient patients look like? What did your table one look like?
1: Yes. Uh, so essentially the table one looked like it was quite balanced with respect to their intervention group and their control group. And by virtue of this sort of stepped wedge structure of the trial, that ultimately there would be crossover from the control group to the intervention group, such that all people would actually experienced the intervention across the full trial duration. And essentially there was a high percentage of participants who had a history of heart failure in both groups and the trial population was generally representative of individuals from within the general population with respect to age, um, sex in particular. And they wrote specifically actually that her population-based studies, their distributions within their population within the trial was quite concordant with the larger population with respect to age, sex, race, or ethnic group. But they also listed that they did not know the race or ethnic data for over half the participants in each group. So I think in that regard then that that was probably a big deficit within the trial participants.
0: Gotcha. So hard to know if it's truly generalizable to the populations that we see in front of us. And because that data isn't reported, it's a bit tricky to actually be able to make that determinant for ourselves as the interpreting clinicians reading this study. Uh, So tell me now about the results. What did they show?
1: For sure. So within their two co-primary outcomes, within 30 days, death from any cause or hospitalization for cardiovascular causes occurred in 301 patients within the intervention phase and for 430 patients that were enrolled during the control phase. So before they crossed over to get that intervention. And so essentially uh, this had an adjusted hazard ratio of 0.88 and a p-value of 0.04 for what it's worth. And so it definitely signals that those that were within this intervention phase that were stratified, using this clinical decision aid and possibly discharged from the emergency room um, and had really good follow-up as an outpatient did better overall within this 30-day primary outcome. Beyond that, the risk of hospitalization for cardiovascular causes appeared to be lower during the intervention phase than during the control phase. And then within that second co-primary outcome over that 20-month period, the cumulative incidence of death from any cause or hospitalization for a cardiovascular-related cause was 54.4% among patients who were enrolled in the intervention phase and 56.2% for those that were enrolled during the control phase. And so ultimately it does seem that those that were intervened upon with this risk stratification tool and secured good follow-up had a lower risk of hospitalization for cardiovascular causes and hospitalization for heart failure more broadly.
0: Well, that certainly seems interesting. Any limitations to this study?
1: Yes, so I think there were three or four limitations that I identified and I sort of alluded to one um, when talking about that table one. And so I think the generalizability of this data is hard, especially from sort of an ethnic and race-based perspective, just because we didn't have the data for more than half the participants in each group as to what their actual race or ethnic group was. Beyond that, I think that the trial design limited the ability to determine which aspects of the intervention had the greatest effect because of how complex this was. So for example, people that were sort of risk stratified to be low risk or could be discharged early from hospital were sent to a rapid heart failure clinic that was primarily managed by a nurse and supervised by a cardiologist so it's difficult to determine if the effect of improved outcomes was by a cardiac specialist because the primary care in that context was sort of through nursing beyond that from sort of a healthcare systems perspective, having a trial for a complex intervention on a systems level um, is subject to a learning curve. And so I think that having a delay in sort of learning how to implement this process can underestimate the benefits in our evaluation of early outcomes because processes and care changes are more efficient over time. And finally, the patients cannot all be linked to data on follow-up outcomes. And so the success of the linkage appeared to be largely higher among patients who were enrolled during the control phase. so I think those are some of the limitations that I identified in exam this paper.
0: Mm -hmm. And as you're explaining this, it does actually make me wonder how um, uh, generalizable is this to a different context with a different cardiology clinic, different nurse supervising, um, and different sort of infrastructure at the hospital level. I think that's a really good point as to um, how this intervention could actually be generalized to a larger population. So Justin, if we take it all together and we take all of the benefits of this trial and the strengths as well as the limitations, um, distill it down for me. What's your take home point?
1: So my take home point is essentially that for individuals that have acute heart failure that presented to an emergency department, the systematic use of some point of care tool to support clinical decision making, coupled with having rapid follow up in an outpatient clinic, led to lower risk of death from any cause or hospitalization for cardiovascular causes within 30 days after presentation than usual care. And so I think that overall the study suggests that implementation of having some sort of approach like this across healthcare systems may provide a pathway for early and safe discharge from hospital or the emergency department and perhaps uh, has improved patient outcomes.
0: Okay. Would this change your practice?
1: I do think that this is practice changing in spite of sort of the caveats that we mentioned. I think that in my short time in residency, I've definitely noticed the increasing utilization and admission of patients that have heart failure to hospital. And I think that because of how significant these resource demands are and how limited these resources are, I I think that um, having any strategy that both improves patient outcomes and patient safety, but also improves that resource burden on a sort of systems-based level is important to consider and implement. And I do think that this is possibly limited by sort of which sort of specific part of Ontario you're in and having access to outpatient cardiology follow-up, for example. But I do think that this definitely signals that we should structure our healthcare system in a way that we can definitely facilitate large scale changes such as this.
0: Awesome. Well, that was a great study, Justin. Uh, thanks so much for sharing it with us.
1: Thank you, Emily. And so now it's your turn to, to share your study. And so, what do you have for us today?
0: So, Justin, I'm sharing a really interesting randomized control trial that caught my eye in the New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, It's titled Single-Dose Psilocybin for Treatment-Resistant Episode of Major Depression, and it was published in the New England Journal of Medicine November 3rd, 2022.
1: My interest has certainly peaked. What was the research question they were looking at?
0: Well, mine was peaked too. Uh, anything about magic mushrooms, I think, is uh, certainly going to catch the attention of uh, readers and clinicians. So, the research question was Is psilocybin safe and effective therapy for treatment resistant major depression?
1: That's a fantastic question. And why is this important?
0: Well, I think first, let's take a step back and let's actually define treatment-resistant major depression. So it's defined as depression that's failed two courses of treatment. And people who have treatment-resistant depression have a greater severity and duration of illness, disability, physical illness, incidences of hospitalization, risk of suicide, economic costs, than patients with treatment-responsive depression. So psilocybin, yes, the compound found in several species of magic mushrooms, has actually shown potential antidepressant efficacy in pilot studies of major depressive disorders, So the objective of this current trial was to identify an acceptable, efficacious dose and assess the safety of a synthetic proprietary formulation of psilocybin administered together with psychological support in patients with treatment-resistant major depressive episode.
1: Wow, that's phenomenal. I mean, depression is so complex, and I think that any trial that's looking at something such as this is really important to, to investigate. What was their study design?
0: Well, this was a phase two randomized double-blind trial. So adults were randomly assigned in a one-to-one-to-one ratio to receive a single dose of this synthetic formulation of psilocybin at a dose of 25 milligrams, 10 milligrams, or one milligram, along with psychological support. So eligible patients completed a run-in period of three to six weeks, during which their antidepressants and other um, medications affecting the central nervous system were tapered and discontinued at least two weeks before the baseline visit which was the day of psilocybin administration. And during this period, the participant met with a therapist at least three times to build trust, receive psychoeducation, and prepare for the psychedelic experience. On the actual day of administration, the individual uh, came to the center and they were there for about six to eight hours. The lead therapist who would prepared the participant for the intervention and the assistant therapist was in attendance. So essentially, administration rooms were designed to provide a non-clinical and calming atmosphere. Uh, during the administration session, participants listened to specially designed music playlists while wearing eye shades to help direct their attention internally. And then after at least six hours and when the psychedelic effects of the drug had fully dissipated partic- participants went home and the trial followed participants for 12 weeks after treatment
1: wow, that's certainly a very complex trial design and what outcomes uh, were they looking at?
0: Well, the primary endpoint was the change from baseline to week three and the total score on the Montgomery Asperg Depression Rating Scale, the MADRS scale. And for those listeners not familiar with this scale, essentially each item has a severity scale from zero to six, with higher scores reflecting more severe symptoms. So ratings are added essentially to form an overall score from zero to 60. And as- Score from 0 to 6 indicates absence of symptoms, 7 to 19 is mild depression, 20 to 34 is moderate, and 35 to 60 indicates severe depression. And there's several uh, things that are included on the Madras scale, 10 factors actually, including things like apparent sadness, reduced sleep, reduced appetite, concentration difficulties, etc.
1: All right. And what did their patients look like according to Table 1?
0: So men and women over the age of 18 were eligible if they met DSM criteria for a single or recurrent episode of major depressive disorder without psychotic features. And participants were outpatients who met criteria for the diagnosis of treatment-resistant depression, and they had to have a current episode of depression that had not responded to two to four adequate trials in terms of both duration and dose of treatment, according to the Massachusetts General Hospital Antidepression Treatment Response Questionnaire. And really, when we looked at the table one, there's a relatively even split between male and female participants. The mean age of individuals included in the trial was around 40. The mean number of lifetime depressive episodes across groups was about seven. Most people included had a current depressive episode that was greater than one year in duration, and more than 90% of included participants did not have prior exposure to psilocybin. Around 90% of included participants were white, so we didn't see too much ethnic diversity at all in the trial
1: that's a significant limitation with respect to generalizability. And what were their main results?
0: Well, 428 participants were screened and 233 were enrolled, underwent randomization, and received psilocybin treatment. There were a total of 79 participants in the 25 milligram group, 75 in the 10 milligram group, and 79 in the one milligram group. The mean MADRS total score at baseline was 32 or 33 in each group, and this corresponded to moderate depression. And drum roll please, essentially what we saw in terms of the major results is that the mean change from baseline to week three in the score was minus 12 for 25 milligrams, minus 7.9 for 10 milligrams, and minus 5.4 for one milligrams. So really what we're seeing in these results is that psilocybin had a really significant impact, just the single dose in that 25 milligram group compared to the one milligram group, on uh, symptoms of major depression in uh depression that was treatment non-responsive. So the caveat to these results is that adverse effects did occur in 179 of 233 participants, so so 77% of participants had adverse effects. And these included headache, nausea, and dizziness, as well suicidal ideation or behavior or self-injury occurred in all dose groups.
1: And what were the main limitations of the study?
0: Well, there were several. So some limitations of the trial included a lack of active comparator. There was also a lack of an act- ethnically like diverse participant sample, and there was the exclusion of persons who were judged to be clinically significant risk of suicide. As well, although the trial was double-blinded, the intensity of the acute subjective effect, the psychedelic effect of the 25 milligram and 10 milligram doses as compared to the one milligram dose really reduced the effectiveness of the double-blind structure of the trial. So participants probably knew which dose they got based on whether or not they had a psychedelic effect from the dose that was administered. So this is a real inherent limitation of studies of drugs that produce psychedelic subjective effects. As well, this trial was relatively small. There were only 233 participants total. I do wonder if the large effect size would be reproducible in a larger RCT. I also worry a little bit about the adverse effects, which occurred in 77% of participants, and whether these adverse effects, particularly increased suicidal ideation and self-injury, would actually be a major barrier to implementation of this intervention in the real world.
1: Those are all uh, great things to sort of focus on, and I wonder how their tapering down of their pre-existing antidepressant medications impacted their response to the psilocybin. I, I wonder what their rationale for doing that was.
0: Yeah, I think they just wanted to wash out any other medications that could potentially interfere. But you're right. Like, Is this actually a really realistic thing that we're able to do in the real world? I'm not sure.
1: For sure, especially if this is sort of treatment-resistant depression, the only thing that's helping them could possibly be that, that medication that they're being down-tapered on. So it's just very interesting to think about. And really, what is the main take-home point from the study?
0: Well, in this phase 2 trial involving participants with treatment-resistant depression, psilocybin at a single dose of 25 milligrams but not 10 milligrams reduced depression scores significantly more than a 1 milligram dose, over a period of three weeks, but it was associated with adverse effects. So given the limitations of this trial, larger and longer trials, including comparison with existing treatments, are required to determine the efficacy and safety of psilocybin for this disorder.
1: Perfect, and is this practice changing for you?
0: Well, not yet. The major effect size from just a single dose of psilocybin in such a hard to treat condition certainly caught my attention and I absolutely think there's potential here it should be investigated further, but I'll hold off on recommending it to my patients until I see a larger and longer phase three RCT.
1: I agree. I'll definitely be keeping my eyes peeled for for any phase three trial in this regard.
0: Me too. Interesting stuff for sure. So Justin, I think this takes us onto the good stuff segment and tell us what would you like to share today?
1: So my Good Stuff segment is about drag race today Uh, and essentially there was a recent article on how uh, Justin Trudeau, our Prime Minister, will be appearing on Canada's drag race and I think that this is significant only insofar as this is the first time that a leader of a country will make an appearance on a drag race related show Um, and I think that's really important for visibility and recognition for all of the LGBTQ plus identifying individuals within our communities.
0: Well that is definitely good stuff.
1: And what about you? What's your good stuff for today?
0: Well, for my Good Stuff segment, I want to share a book that just came out this month called The Keys to Kindness by Claudia Hammond. And research from the book was drawn from the world's largest in-depth study on kindness, the kindness test, in which the author worked with a team led by a professor at the University of Sussex. So essentially in this study, more than 60,000 people from 144 countries chose to take part. And participants answered questions on their level of kindness, perception of the view of kindness in the workplace, their well-being, personality, health, value systems, and more. And interestingly, well, I thought interestingly, one of the most intriguing findings was that the main chief obstacle to people carrying out more acts that were kind wasn't that they don't care, but that they worried that their actions might be misinterpreted, with reasons cited like causing mild offense or embarrassment. Essentially, people were held back from performing kind acts by a fear that an offer of help might not be welcome. Yet, in reality, carrying out kind acts and receiving kind acts overwhelmingly enhanced the mood of the giver and the receiver. So bottom line, when in doubt, kindness is almost never the wrong answer.
1: That's fantastic. I uh, I definitely check this out. This is, I never knew that the kindness test was even something that was done or investigated.
0: Yeah, so I think that that is a good way to end our good stuff.
1: Alrighty. Thank you so much for your time, Emily. And I look forward to recording
0: another podcast with you again. Thanks to you too, Justin. Always a pleasure to record with you.
1: The Rounds Table is hosted online at healthydebate.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Rounds Table. Thanks to our audio editors, Emilio Garcia-Flores and Arjun Sharma. Also thanks to Amol Verma, founder of the Rounds Table, and Kieran Quinn, the previous director. We'd also like to give a big thanks to Seema Marwaha, editor-in-chief at Healthy Debate, for all the support.